Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, a deep dive into the Canadian healthcare system. How is it not serving patients? And more importantly, how can we make it better? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Every Friday we do things a little bit differently. We take a big issue affecting us in society and we try to bring in a panel of experts who can tackle it from every which way. And today we're going to do a deep dive into healthcare, which is not exactly an underexplored topic, uh, certainly not in the last year and a half. But it is one that oftentimes is scant on solutions. We, we have a very narrow view of healthcare discourse and, and so many of the big changes or even marginal changes that a lot of people have proposed for the system just will not get addressed in the political realm for reasons that I'm sure we'll tackle in the next little while. We have a, a fantastic panel of guests all bringing very different expertise to the question of healthcare and specifically healthcare reform in this country, which I think we can all agree is something that is very much needed. Alex Hannum is the president and CEO of MedPoint, which is a healthcare center in my neck of the woods in London, Ontario, that does a lot of great work and, and has both public and private elements. Dr. Sean Watley, who is a family physician and author of the fantastic book, When Politics Comes Before Patients, also the former head of the Ontario Medical Association. And Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, which has been doing a a lot of work specifically with a case in BC that I, I'm certain you know of by now. But I actually want to start there because I, I know there is this case that's been taking up several years, Joanna, that, that is really getting to the heart of, I think, where a lot of people's frustrations with the healthcare system in Canada are right now, which is that we're told we have this universal government guaranteed access to a healthcare system. But for a lot of people, that's just access to a waiting list. Yeah, absolutely. So that is the evidence that we led in the case, which I don't know how much background we should provide, but very quick story for a very long story. It's been going on for more than 10 years. It's brought by the Canadian Constitution Foundation with Canby Surgery Centre, which is a longstanding private surgical facility in Vancouver, as well as for patient plaintiffs. And the case is basically that, as you say, access to healthcare is not access to a waiting list um, and that the government cannot at the same time fail determined or just completely provenly over decades um, overwhelmingly fail to treat individuals within maximum medically accepted wait times and at the same time prevent those same patients from taking their health into their own hands and seeking treatment outside of the public system. And yet that is the detente that we're in. Let me turn to you, Alex. How does MedPoint fit into the delivery system we have in, in Canada? And more importantly, why is it that way? Well, we were born out of just trying to make a better system. My wife was a physician in a, uh, a medical clinic and working in walk-in clinics and was really quite frustrated uh, with a lot, of, uh, a lot of patients that were dealing with chronic health issues that could have been prevented. She really felt like there was no focus on prevention. She felt like a cog in a broken wheel. And so I built a better wheel. And we had a lot of conversations about what was out there in the market. We looked at uh, the Copeman Healthcare Center right around the time that Don Copeman announced he was coming to Ontario. And quite honestly, I've actually spoken to Don since, and I said, you know what, you created us, uh, which was uh, an interesting conversation. 
we just felt like if we could focus on prevention and make it affordable, we weren't, we were going to do executive health care, but bring it to the general population. Uh, we might have been a couple of years ahead of uh, where the market was. Uh, so the first couple of years were, uh, were a, little, a little tight. Uh, and we, we did quite well with uh, people from outside of London and uh, executives. Uh, but today, in today's climate, uh, we're, we're packed and we're, we're expanding and we're working uh, 60, 70 hour weeks just trying to keep up. Now, where do you fit in the public-private discussion? So we are a uh, public-private hybrid. So we have a number of medical specialists that bill OHIP for their services. We have, uh, we have a walk-in clinic. We have a pediatric walk-in clinic. Again, all covered by OHIP. But when people want to focus on prevention, we offer a three-hour medical or a five-hour medical that focuses on uh, disease mitigation, lifestyle modification. Find out, essentially, do a lot of screening, find things that we feel uh, the clients and patients need to go to that next step and then uh, facilitate that, uh, that process. Uh, one thing that we have found is that with executive level healthcare, the client might be paying for a medical, but they really expect a better overall experience and a better result. So what we learned very, very quickly was it wasn't just, here's the medical, let's throw you back into the OHIP system, which isn't very efficient. It was get me through that OHIP system consistently, get me access to the specialist. And what we really found was that we, uh, we started to attract a number of specialists to our clinic to the point that we, uh, we've been as high as at one time 28 physicians working out of MedPoint, starting with just one family doctor and growing. So we've added gynecology, cardiology, dermatology, gastro, and, and then of course, everything just sort of escalated from there. We are now have senior care with geriatrics. We have pediatrics. Uh, and as you know, we have fitness facilities and it just keeps growing. When you hear this, uh, Sean, do you think that it's a fair assertion that the system, the traditional public universal system, doesn't really allow for that focus on preventative health care? Well, there just isn't time. I just think of my clinic this morning. You were squeezed in. We're asking extra people to squeeze in. And then we're trying to deal with the issue they came with the issue that they didn't tell the front staff about. So that adds another half an hour, plus all of the things that I'm supposed to be screening for. Did you get your colon cancer screening done? Oh, by the way, your cholesterol is high. You have a 50% chance of a heart attack or stroke over the next 10 years. Here are the numbers. Oh, that can't be true, doc. And so all these things require time to actually try to support people and encourage them to change. So I think the, the polyclinic concept, but also, I mean, three hours for preventative health maintenance. Wow. What that would be awesome. And the challenge with this is if you go to government and say, listen, this is something that we think would really help patients. This is what we would like to do. Uh, they're going to say, well, show me the KPIs. What are the key performance indicators? Why, you know, how many extra quality adjusted life years are we going to get out of this particular in, uh, intervention? And you can't do it because how do I know that me telling you to exercise, stop smoking, and, and maybe uh, drink a little less alcohol is going to make you live another 10 years? And at what level of function and how many extra tax dollars are you going to pay uh, as a result of my intervention? And so we, 
we're dealing with a type of organization, healthcare, that uh, we can't always see exactly the work that's being done or the result of that work. And so it's similar to education or peacekeeping. Go keep the peace. Okay, how do we measure peace? It's a metaphysical concept. How much peace has been kept? And so I think there's a need. I think patients would love it. But trying to create an evidence-based argument to um, present before the funders is a challenge. And all of us on the panel are going to ask you a question later, so you can be a low hip for this time. Uh, we appreciate you taking it out of your schedule, uh, Dr. Watley. Let me bring this back to you, Joanna, because what we've just heard there are uh, two very different perspectives, or I guess one similar perspective, but two different angles, one of which is is what's being done in part outside the system, and a, another one is showing that the limitations of, of the system that the government has given to healthcare practitioners, and a lot of this must sound very familiar to you, looking at the facts of the Canby case, and, and I'm wondering why the government is so resistant when these solutions are being offered by people that don't cost government any money. I think there are a number of factors. I think first, the first thing to note is that the government is obviously resistant to anything that entails going out of the public system. And that is a question of ideology, right? Which Sean and I have spoken about at length, that it is just a sacred cow in Canadian politics to acknowledge what is already happening. People going out of the system by leaving the country, people going out of the system by, um, by frequenting these businesses that operate in a to be honest, I don't want to give Alex any legal advice, but a little bit of a gray area. Um, it's not clear. The very problem in BC and Ontario has similar provisions um, is that physicians cannot build a public system as well as bill privately, um, which makes it uneconomic for them um, to sort of like put all of their um, put all of their eggs in one basket, so to speak. Um, and so there's a great resistance to talking about any type of innovation for basically ideological reasons because it's an article of faith and you know it's a source of great pride that Canadians have in the public system uh, which I think everybody on this panel would agree with that we should continue to strengthen our public system um, and so and the second thing is simply that all outcomes that government allots to healthcare is not based on the needs of the population or the or even the willingness of the market to step up. I think it's very clear at this point, and Alex would know this firsthand, that there is some portion of the Canadian market that is willing to pay a premium for a three-hour, you know, holistic health check. But they are just thinking about, you know, budget rationing and budget allotments. And there is not much time and capacity to think beyond just, you know, dealing with the most acute emergencies. Everything else gets shunted to a waiting list and pretty much literally everything else from the evidence. When you've been crafting your offerings, Alex, have you found that you have been excessively constrained by the regulations from what you would love to be doing? Not at all. Um, and uh, thank you, Joanna. I, I do have very good legal advice. <laughs> and we are, uh, are uh, actually the concept that we came up with 16 years ago uh, our lawyer has actually sent that to uh, a number of different places saying the only place that's actually operating above law uh, is MedPoint. There's a lot of gray area in this industry for sure. And, and you know, you both bring up excellent points. Sean, you know, when you're talking, if you have a, in our system, if you have a patient who's having a heart attack, you don't have time to talk to them about the importance of a proper diet. Um, and when, when it comes to uh, and, and, and if we if we screened everybody with an MRI 
or did abdominal ultrasounds on everybody every day, we'd find a lot of problems with a lot of people. But what's the ROI on that? And so we can't, we can't screen everybody for everything all the time. We have to use the, the clinical judgment of the physicians. And there are certain things that we feel uh, are going to give us a better uh, bang for our buck. Um, again, with executive health has been around for 40, 50 years. Uh, MedCan started in downtown Toronto in the TD building. Um, and it's been something that's been exclusive for the executives. And, and the concept is, hey, we have a lot of executives. We have to make sure they, uh, they stay healthy so that our company stays healthy and we want to catch disease early and deal with it. Our concept was to how do we bring this to the general population? How do we, uh, how do we make this accessible, affordable? Uh, I don't want to get into a sales pitch, but I'm half price of what the Toronto clinics offer. Uh, our, we have our five-hour medical, actually, when we started, uh, is almost the exact same medical in Toronto. We're at retail at $18.95. Toronto is over $3,000 easily. Uh, but again, they're pulling on 5 million people, and I'm pulling on 300,000. One thing that has really happened, though, and uh, I'm sure everyone on this panel would see this, is with the age demographic uh, of physicians, we've got 40 plus 40% 40 of physicians uh, that were over the age of 55, 40%, 17% were over the age of 65. That's Ontario. In Canada, similar statistics. The doctors themselves are in that baby boom generation, and they're starting to retire. When COVID hit, uh, a lot of those physicians just said, okay, well, I'm not coming back. And so in London, we had last year, we had 12 family physicians retire. This year, we've already had eight family physicians retire. So what we're getting, before I was getting the executives and I was getting people saying, hey, I just want a, a preventative approach to healthcare. I want really good screening. I want you to help me get through the system. You know what I'm getting now? I'm getting everyday people saying, I don't have a doctor anymore and I'm not gonna get one. And we have had so, and you know, if we've had, 20 doctors retire in the last two years, and maybe, maybe a net of 16 doctors retire less. The biggest challenge that I've seen in that is the seniors. No one is going to, even if you have a new doctor coming in, seniors are not going to get picked up. So if you're in your 70s, 80s, and you have a number of medical uh, scripts and, and ailments and, and chronic health conditions, you're not getting picked up. So we've had to shift and we've had to create a senior care program. And the, I think the, what we've been able to do and where we've been successful is a lot of physicians have said, hey, I've done my, I've done my 20, 30 years. Uh, I don't want to run my practice anymore. I just want to come in, see patients, do medicine and go home. And we've become sort of a retirement home for a lot of physicians to end their career with us. We also have a lot of new grads and uh, that have recently joined us, who are just, again, frustrated with the healthcare system and frustrated with the morning that Sean's explaining is you're trying to do too much and you, know, you get exhausted, you get burnout. Physician burnout is a massive, massive uh, challenge that no one's really looking at.
Well, and this is not a new problem either. I mean, I've been hearing for years and years the challenges of, of people that can't get a family doctor. My family was very fortunate that I had the same doctor from the time I was a child until he retired, but his daughter took over his practice. So I, I was not affected by his retirement, whereas other people I know have had doctors retired and you know, they're forced to, to fend for themselves. So I, I'm assuming these numbers that Alex just rhymed off are, are not new to you, Sean. They're probably things that you were dealing with when you were at the OMA and, and are still seeing now just as a frontline practitioner here. Why is it that uh, we, we aren't seeing a, an influx of doctors? You know, it's one of the few jobs that you're kind of guaranteed to have a pretty stable income from. What What's stopping people from, from doing this and practicing in Canada? Great question. So health human resources is always a fun topic to uh, great committees to sit at for sure. Um, the short answer is we're not pumping enough out, but that oversimplifies a complex issue. So we can talk about absolute shortages of physicians versus relative shortages of physicians. So if I can um, survive and stay sane with a roster of a thousand patients and that's it, that's very different than if I could stay sane with a roster of 3,000 or 5,000 patients. And so you ask, well, how could we have such a different relative uh, capacity for a, you know, a fully functioning physician? And a lot of it has to do with what we're allowed to do. So I don't know if the last time you've been to a dentist or to your accountant or to your lawyer's office, does your uh, accountant do everything in the office? Do they just have a, a receptionist and then they write the books and go through your tax forms and enter them all? No, they have a, a horde, an army of people helping them. And so they leverage their own knowledge to get other people helping them to do work. Same thing in the dentist's office, same thing in any other uh, professional services office. Whereas in, in Canada, we have this idea, and, uh, and I, I won't go on and on about this, but we have this idea that every single patient must be seen by the doctor before the doctor can legally bill for that service. Now, there are some exceptions if I hire a nurse and I delegate authority to her or him, et cetera. But essentially, it's very, very difficult to scale up the amount of services I'm able to provide. Whereas in any other functioning situation, you can if you maintain responsibility for the outcomes of the services provided by these other providers. And so what the government often wants to do is they want to get doctors to assume responsibility and oversight for allied health providers, but yet not pay them for it or, or not, or not figure out because it's, it's never Andrew's never needing to be seen by Watley. We, we can let him be seen by a nurse all the time. Well, it's never like that. It's maybe 80-20 or 90-10 or, you know what, for the next six months, Andrew has to see Watley all the time as the patient and the physician. Um, but now Andrew's doing great for a couple of years and Watley can be in the background. And so that sort of nuance and pivoting back and forth is just not, not possible in our rigid system where I see you, I bill a fee, that's done, or I see you, you're on my roster, and that's done at I'd love to circle back to Alex's comments about the ultrasounds and stuff for everybody, but I don't know if that's getting off topic, Andrew. I'll leave it with you. Well, go. let's go for it. Why not? We're having a, an open discussion here. Let's hear it. So, so I, I think it's wonderful. Um, Alex talks about the opportunity, but also the appetite. A lot of times uh, patients say, doc, I just want an MRI of my knee. And I say, yeah, but you have anterior knee pain. But I say, it's not really indicated. Yeah, but I just want to know, doc. And so there's certainly an appetite within the public to consume a lot more healthcare than we currently provide in the system. Some of that I would actually disagree with. You shouldn't 
probably you probably don't need an MRI for anterior knee pain. However, to Alex's point, oftentimes we'll do um, scans and we'll find things that, you know, thank God we did the scan, we found something. At the same time, we often do scans like an ultrasound of your abdomen or whatever, and we find something that's benign, but we don't know it's benign until we do three more tests and a surgery. And now you're recovering from a large cut in your abdomen that you really didn't need to have in the first place. And so we have to be a little bit cautious uh, because we open ourselves up to criticism. And this is one of the main criticisms people have for any kind of services outside the public system is that, oh, you're just going to do too much. You're going to do a million useless tests and a, and a whole bunch of useless surgeries and people will die because you are evil, greedy people. And so we have to be cautious to that um, accusation. And really, I, I think the, the moral high ground here is providing service care in a dignified way without the wait times that we currently experience and you know on the one hand giving people what they want but at the same time being kind of the information broker and saying hey listen this is what the evidence says we're not able to do this evidence-based intervention within the current public system but we can do it here in alex's clinic or whatever and so continuing to main a, maintain a very high standard with respect to evidence and scientific thinking and and going out of our way to avoid the commercialism that the other ideological opponents will immediately attack you for. So I just throw that out there. I don't know if that's provocative or not. Well, we'll let Alex respond to that in a moment, but I, I want to go to you, Joanna, for a moment and return to this idea of the doctor shortage, because one of the chief criticisms we hear from anything that moves us in more of a private direction or a, a choice direction, especially from the usual suspects who, who want to defend at all costs the, the Medicare system in Canada, is that if you allow for all of these things to go private, for doctors to work privately, you're going to just amplify this shortage in the public system and, and cause basically basically an exodus that, that uh, diminishes the, the universality of this. And I, I know this is something that even the BC government, I believe, ha, has kind of argued as, as well as others seeking intervention. Is that actually the case, that the more you allow for private alternatives, the weaker the public system gets? So there's that, that proposition does not logically follow. And it was sort of interesting to see, um, I attended obviously the Canby appellate here, appeal hearings, which were last June, and there was a real vein in the government submissions that was essentially saying um, in much fancier words, doctors are greedy. And if doctors are given access to these private patients, they will not practice in the public care system. And it was, pretty much unsubstantiated, but it was sort of just this specter that they were very deliberately weaving into their arguments. And so conversely, the evidence actually shows, particularly with surgeons and specialists who are particularly affected by these um, non-double billing regulations in BC that they can't work in the private system as well as the public system, is that many of these surgeons and specialists, for example, um, one doctor who led evidence at the trial, Dr. Javert of False Creek uh, Surgical Center, in Vancouver, um, he gave evidence that he was allotted so little operating time in the public hospital system that he wasn't even uh, allotted enough time to maintain his own medical bar license. Uh, it was so low. So the issue, again, it comes down to the fundamental mechanism, which is government rationing of hours um, rather than you know the actual ability and presence and willingness of 
of doctors. It just comes down to the limitations in the budget, which are of course determined by largely political considerations. Is it just then about the government underfunding the public system or is there something else that's at issue then? I, I don't think so. I don't think that the issue can be remedied just by the government throwing more money at the problem because we find that year over year, Canada, uh, you know, on average continues to increase funding to the public system. We have one of um, the largest, largest share of our GDP, which is allocated to the public care system, and yet the performance indicators keep going the other way. So no, I don't think it's simply an, uh, a question of how much money is being allotted. It's a question of how efficiently and how thoughtfully we're approaching our system design. So let's go back to you, Alex. I, I know uh, Sean Watley had mentioned some uh, concerns that people raise about this idea of, if I can just put a, a simple phrase on it, just on-demand uh, healthcare services. And, and I know this is an accusation you, you faced. I would also add, though, that it seems like this is coming out in a lot of other areas now where there's a lot more of an emphasis on individual empowerment, on, on patient empowerment, of, of going in and, and not being as, as deferential to doctors as people were perhaps a, a generation ago. But, but is there a concern that, you know, if you do all of these procedures that some people are saying are unnecessary, you're going to just reveal things and open a bunch of doors that really don't need to be opened? Absolutely. And, you know, it, what's fantastic about some, a roundtable like this is that you, we have so many uh, invested people that have such amazing points. Sean has great points and Joanna talks about, you know, uh, in healthcare being wrapped in the flag and the sacred cow of healthcare that we can't usually have these discussions and come up with solutions. And that's always the big challenge is we just need to have the conversation and say, okay, let's put the, let's, let's put the drama aside and let's figure out how do we move forward? Um, Sean, I had the same, uh, the same concerns that you did. Uh, all of years ago, uh, all of our competitors had the abdominal ultrasound and we didn't have the abdominal ultrasound. And the reason I said we didn't have it is, uh, well, there's a lot of false positives that come from that. And you end up spending a lot of time looking for chasing, chasing shadows. Uh, and then we, as we, so in our three hour medical, we don't have that. In our five-hour medical, we have a couple of different options, one of which is the abdominal ultrasound, one is an echocardiogram, stress test, and some more blood work. And the, the, I'm sort of part of the converted now because I've seen what we found. And uh, I've dealt, and, and from someone who used to offsell that to a certain say, well, oh, you don't really need that. You just need our lesser medical. And if we feel you need a medical, if we feel you need an abdominal ultrasound, We'll get you the abdominal ultrasound. And then all of a sudden, all these kidney cancers start coming in. And we had a pancreatic cancer. There's no sound on these. There's no indication. You know, how many kidney cancers are found incidentally? So, you know, the statistic is, is something ridiculous. I, and I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm not going to say it. But we do find things that our physicians, in all of their clinical judgment, would not have ordered that test in the first place. So I sleep real well at night, knowing that we save lives. Every, every day we find something on someone. On average, our clients leave with two referrals to specialists because we found something and it usually pans out into more uh, positive testing. A lot of the criticism of executive health is you just become a grocery, uh, a, a, 
checklist. Oh, you want an MRI? Absolutely. Let me get that for you. We don't do that. I know there are some places that do do that because they have to focus on, on customer service. And the argument that we always put forth is, look, we're going to do what's best for you, whether you like it or not. And, you know, we have a lot, a lot of clients. We have a very, uh, as I said, we've started with a rather high socioeconomic clientele, obviously, but we also have those general patients and who, who are just coming in and they just want to spend their money on their health. And they should have the opportunity to be able to do that. And through our public-private hybrid model, they're, they're allowed to do that in an affordable way. And as I said, we, uh, we catch so many things that uh, they normally would not have had the chance to even have access to the doctor. And, you know, Sean, you're mentioning, and when people come in, it's not one issue, it's four, five, six, seven issues. Uh, and I wanted to circle back on one other thing. Nurse practitioners, uh, was what Sean was saying, a nurse practitioner can do a lot of what a family doctor can do. We have just, I just hired one, I, and I'm actually hiring a second one just to keep up with our demand. The challenge is, is that nurse practitioners in some parts of London run their own clinics. They do almost all the healthcare, and there's no doctor there except for a supervising physician, but they can't bill OHIP. So I can't hire a nurse practitioner to bill OHIP to assist. So when I hire a nurse practitioner, even though a family health team gets actually paid extra money to have a nurse practitioner, as a fee for service physicians, we can't hire nurse practitioners and bill OHIP. They might make the doctor's life a little bit easier, but essentially it's a, a, a cost to our business. It's a, it's a cost that I'm now willing to pay because of the, the, the benefits, but there's a lot of inconsistencies and as Sean was saying, a dental office will have the hygienist and all these other people that are doing a lot of the work, and they're just kind of coming in and supervising and then making that final uh, assessment. OHIP is different, and OHIP is trickier. Well, this is, I think, bringing up an important point here that, that goes to the way that doctors are, are paid. And, and I know that you know this uh, intimately well, probably better than you want to know it because you've been on the OMA side and, and also in, in family practice here, Sean. But, you know, a, a doctor has a, a very rigid set of uh, things that you can bill for. You obviously can, can scale up or down depending on, on the work that you do. But at the same time, what you pay, is, is, what you get paid is, is set. Anything you bring into your practice, you're paying for out of pocket, you know, from the receptionist to all of these other things. So where is the incentive for a lot of doctors to, to do that, to really expand and invest in, in some things that could help their patients, but, but are ultimately just coming out of their bottom line as, as business owners? Yeah, so great question. And to give you a few concrete examples, just a few years ago, they decreased uh, the fee for phlebotomy. So that's dra drawing a, a lab, uh, you know, drawing blood out of your arm. Alex might know the fee off the top of his head, but I think it's down around the $2.45 mark or so. Yeah, around that, or yeah. So, yeah. so I, I have a hard time to buy the elastic band that you wrap around your arm and, and the alcohol swab and the little containers that, you know, the needle and the container that we use to actually draw the blood, never mind hiring someone to draw your uh, blood work. So certainly in little rural clinics, like the one I, I work in right now, we're getting um, seniors who don't drive, they have to wait for the, there's actually a bus that comes out to our community twice a day, they're, they're looking at a round trip uh, event of, of maybe four to six hours to get into town 
to draw labs because the government won't let me charge even $8 just to cover the cost. Now we work around it. We're part of a family health team. And so actually we, we sneak in that service, but we're not really billing for it. So we still provide the service, but it's all these workarounds that are causing a problem. Another concrete example is ECGs. We have an old fashioned ECG cardiogram machine in our clinic. Well, I'm not allowed to build for bill for the cardiograms that I would otherwise order. I, I can only fill out the requisition and send them to a person to another lab where it will be done there and read there. So I could go on and on about the silliness around the billing things. But I wanted to give you a concrete answer to your uh, question about will the private system um, skim the cream off the public system, right? Will we steal doctors and nurses into the private system? And so we actually have a concrete test case of that right now in Ontario. So in vitro fertilization is covered up to 5,700 cycles of IVF. So people wanna get pregnant. This is one of the ways that you can go ahead and, and try to get that done. Um, in Ontario, 5,700 cycles of IVF, at least that's the count I last heard. Uh, a, a medium to large size or perhaps fairly large size fertility clinic can do about 1500 uh, cycles per year at the biggest clinics. We'll say let's the average clinic would be around 1000 to 1200. And maybe there might be a few small clinics. But bottom line, no matter how we slice it, if we only allowed publicly funded IVF services, and that's it, no other fertility treatments were allowed except that which can be offered in the public system, we would need around five perhaps five big clinics or maybe even as many as seven medium size or maybe eight, you know, medium to smaller size IVF clinics across Ontario. Do you know how many IVF clinics, do you know how, how many infertility clinics we have offering IVF currently in Ontario? 13. So the fact that we have 13 clinics means we have 13 separate locations for patients to access care with nurses and docs and scanning equipment and lab access and, and, and because we allow a blended approach. So although you would think that we've actually poached all these doctors away from doing the publicly funded IVF services, actually we've multiplied the access, the convenience, the decreased wait times for people to get those core 5,700 services that are offered. So I hope that makes sense and, and I haven't garbled the numbers too much for you, but basically allowing a blend increases the overall amount of healthcare resources being offered in a community, which allows patients option to access care. They don't have to travel down from the far north now to Toronto to, in, to get their infertility services. There's a robust infertility clinic in Northern Ontario and so on. So I just offer that as an example of how offering a blended approach will not poach from the public system, at least as far as we can see so far in Ontario. I want to spend the, the remaining time we have talking about some of the substantive change that we could see, either the big ideas or even some some very specific ones. I mean, as we heard from Sean, right down to being able to charge the government more to do a blood draw. I mean, very small things. But I'll start with you on, on this, Joanna, because I, I know that obviously the Canby case, which has been going on for a decade and will, will continue to go on, is one that's dealing with a lot of these big issues and, and in a very specific application in, in BC. But if we're talking about where the problem is? Are, are we talking about the Canada Health Act? Or are we talking about ways that provinces are applying it? If, if we were to look at a political change, where's the, the biggest thing or the most significant thing that needs to change to start uh, eroding some of these barriers that we've been discussing? 
Yeah, so it's not the Canada Health Act. We think that you know public-private uh, partnerships are certainly possible within the confines of the Canada Health Act. It's the provincial regulations in BC. It's the Medicare Protection Act, um, which prevents, and I was thinking when Alex was speaking that what happens when his clinic refers a patient to a specialist is when the funny stuff starts starts happening. And if we could see the same type of hybrid approach that Sean so um, illuminatively described, I wasn't aware of that with fertility clinics applied to surgeons and specialists. So, you know, so can we have a blended approach when you need to get a knee replacement or cataract surgery um, or, or even, a, you know, a cancer screening or, or a spinal surgery? Um, that is where the crackdown, at least in British Columbia, and I'm not sure about Ontario, maybe Alex can tell us about this, is the most acute where we have, you know, members of the BC NDP government, particularly, and it, it's kind of ironic that Canby was operating for more than 10 years in Vancouver without any deleterious effects to, um, to the public system and with the you know, tacit support of the government. Um, but the government, once this litigation started, would actually go to clinics and serve physicians and surgeons with notices that they would be fined um, if they took any, any patients in the private system, even though we started um, edging up against the COVID pandemic. So it caused, in fact, real harm. So we should just be very practical and functional about things, even if it's things as serious and as, as you know, life-altering as surgeries. Alex, I'll, I'll let you respond to uh, what Joanna said, but I'd also add a, a question to that for you to consider, which is, what do you think is the, the biggest thing or the first thing that could be changed that would dramatically help patients in healthcare? Oh, it's such a loaded question. I don't know if you have <laughs> all the time. Uh, in response to Joanna's uh, question, you know, we don't uh, we don't set up private payments for any of our clients. We uh, we use the OHIP system to the fullest. And where we uh, the one thing I've learned in 16 years of doing this is that if if there's a one hour uh, drive to save two months of a wait time people have zero problem doing that. They have zero problem going to the States if they had to, but we never send anybody to the States. We never send anybody to, for private uh, things. It comes up so rarely. There's, you know, the, the, just the act of getting a private MRI in, in Ontario is not worth it. However, I can find an OHEP covered MRI in a privately run clinic in three weeks, where in London you'll wait, you know, three months. So, what we try and do is navigate the system to find the shorter wait times. The best way we do that is we have a number of specialists that come on and work at MedPoint. And those specialists are accessible to the general public. Other doctors can send to our doctors. And we just have, uh, we have them right on site. And that makes a big difference. Um, and to be honest, we, we've actually just added psychiatry. And I, you know, psychiatry is very, very hard to find. It's, it can be a year, year and a half wait. And we have brought one directly onto our, our, uh, our staff and she, all she does is bill OHIP. So I think we're missing, I, you know, I don't have the solutions to, I, you know, years ago, if you asked me that question, I would say, we gotta have public private hybrids, you know, have something that's OHIP and, and privately run. I would say that the government should be in the private healthcare business. You know, it shouldn't be independent people. It should be out in the open and say, here's your private MRI machine. 
it's going to cost you this much to do it. And if you want to jump the line, you know, the money's going to go into that place and it's going to be funded back into the healthcare system. So, and how much money can we save there? And again, I think there's so much rhetoric and so much of the boogeyman of, of the private healthcare system. We don't have two tier healthcare system. We've got nine tiers. And the number one tier is who do you know? You know, I remember years ago, this hour is 22 minutes. So you had a joke saying, oh, I got to get in. Oh, it's, it's six months to get in. Oh, you know, Wanda? Okay, I'll get you in. You know, it's that happens. And we all know it happens. And so it needs to be out in the, the, the black market of who do you know? And how do you, who do you give this guy a bottle of scotch? I could tell you stories of people who got knee surgeries because they sent a bottle of Johnny Walker blue to, uh, through a lawyer to a doctor who bumped them up on the list. It happens. Um, the bigger issue that no one is facing yet is what's coming. And what's coming is we have wait times that have gone up and up and up. We've had surgeries that have been delayed because of COVID. It has, uh, we were in a bad situation pre-COVID. Now we've got these massive wait lines and we're at the tip of the iceberg because many, many clients, many, many patients aren't going in to see their doctors. With the exception, I'm sure, of Sean and some other fantastic physicians that are out there, a lot of doctors, especially in family health teams, have been sitting at home and they're not seeing patients in person. The, the CMPA, or sorry, the, the CPSO and the Ministry of Health just had to basically send out a letter in the last two weeks saying, hey guys, time to come back to work. You know, we've been working unbelievable hours just trying to get through our clients. Now I've got an advantage of doing that, or I've got a reason to do that uh, financially for sure, but there is a massive demand and the people that are coming in are saying, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. They've got, you know, I've been sitting there with knee pain. I'm waiting for my doctor to come back to work. They're not doing it. I need someone to help me get through this system. So when those patients who are still afraid to leave their house finally poke their head out like ground, uh, you know, Groundhog Day, look out and say, okay, it's safe. I'm going to go see my doctor. Those doctors are going to be writing referrals for orthopedics, for hearing, for audiology, for, for dermatology those referrals are going to go through the roof. And we're going to go from two-year wait times in some places to five-year wait times. And at that point, so your question is, how do you fix the system? You, the system can be fixed, but you've got to look at someone who can run it uh, better. Uh, I'll give you a good example. The, the Cleveland Clinic is a 28-minute air, air, uh, uh, air, air flight from Toronto to Cleveland. They have a 50 hectare facility there. They could probably fix Ontario's uh, orthopedic knee surgery problem within a week or within a couple of months maybe, but it's gonna cost money. So we have to look at other partners who can run things efficiently. And we might have to start sending Ontarians directly to a partner in the US who have their act together, who can run things properly or allow them to come up here and set up shop. There's got to be other solutions because those politicians that have been wrapping themselves in the flag and saying, oh, no, 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 and, and the challenges that uh, Joanna is dealing with out there, they are going to suddenly be looking at people marching in the streets if they could walk 
saying, I need the, I need these surgeries and you've got to come up with a solution and you can't deny me uh, access to the healthcare system that I'm paying my taxes for. Thank you, Alex. We'll, we'll give you the final word on this, Sean. And I, I always try to end these things on a bit more of a cheery note, although Alex has uh, shattered that idea in, in some ways. But but still, are, are there individual fixes either on the, the big scale or even the micro scale that you think could be put in that would move us in that direction we need to be headed? Yeah, so such an important and huge question, Andrew. And I appreciate I had a few extra minutes to think about things. But I, I guess I would, I would simplify it down to two words. Number one, we have to define what we're trying to fix. And number two, we have to let it happen. So you could talk about innovation with public-private partnerships. You could talk about innovative ways to manage the system. You could talk about innovation with respect to incentives, innovation with respect to regulation, decreasing regulation, right-touch regulation. There's so many different opportunities to create change. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are many other quite high-functioning wheels out there, not just south of the border, and God forbid we talk about American anything, right? Not Notwithstanding Alex's comments, I actually agree with them. But you can look to Europe or anywhere else in the, in the world that is doing better than we are. The Commonwealth Fund study, Mirror Mirror, just updated their data in 2020 on this. And once again, we're you know second from the bottom of the pack in the OECD countries. So I think the challenge is that it's kind of like saying, okay, Sean, uh, give me your top three fixes on how to improve parenting in Canada. Well, it, it's it's huge, right? How do you make better parents? And so uh, on, on the one hand, we have to allow the professionals who've committed their lives to doing this kind of thing to let them do what they know the patients need. So that's part of it, but it's not that simple. So I think we need the legislative work that and the, and the uh, legal work that Joanna and her team is doing. We need the public-private partnerships that Alex and his team is doing. But we also have great opportunities within hospitals themselves to look at how managers think. How does the professional managerial class get trained and taught? And what sort of key performance indicators are they driving towards? How are the KPIs themselves creating um, um, untoward outcomes. Um, I'm missing the adjective right now, but um, they're creating outcomes that are often exactly the opposite. So you think of a wait time strategy, four hour limit, that's it. Well, maybe if we just punt people home faster, we'll be able to meet, meet uh, a perverse, that's what I'm looking, perverse incentives. So we have to, um, there are so many opportunities, but we have to de first define what we want to look at. And too often what we do in Canada is we start with weights, I agree, wait times are terrible and we need to fix them. But the simple way to fix them is just to pour a whole bunch of money, more money in. And we keep seeing this every 10 years or so, you know, in 2004, a fix for a generation. Or we talk about jumping the queue and preferential access. And so, again, the, I believe it was McGuinty government, the Liberals anyways, in Ontario 2004, protecting the future of Medicare Act, where there's a $25,000 fine for anyone caught jumping the queue. Well, as far as I know, no one's been fined yet. And we continue to know that privileged access is a fact of life. Um, the uh, CEO of the Dallas uh, Dallas um, professional sports team was on Twitter and then blew up, that story blew up on media just recently, a few years ago. And he was describing how he got better care in a large Toronto hospital because someone recognized him as someone famous. And he described it. He said, I know I wasn't in as much pain and I hadn't been there as long as a whole bunch of other people who were in worse conditions. So it really 
behooves us to start at what do we want where, where do we want to start fixing the system personally i think we need to start with dignity how are people being treated in the system itself what is it like for them when they actually access care and if we start from that point and build from there i think we have a great opportunity to just start knocking dominoes over and saying oh this this gives an undignified experience well why are you doing that why can't we change that could we maybe change that what about and when we ask these uh courageous questions i think the only way we can go is up from here so it's a huge opportunity hopefully that's a more positive note to end on it's pretty hard to go down when we are where we're at well that's yeah it's it's so bad it could only get better i guess is uh, one way to to instill some optimism uh, no i i think that's very well said and and you've reminded me sean i didn't do my obligatory disclaimer that you have to do anytime you talk about healthcare in canada which is that private does not mean american this is not a, a dichotomy it's not a binary we're not talking about choosing between canadian healthcare or american healthcare but perhaps building a system that's uh, better than either one right now uh, so thanks for uh, for inadvertently prompting that uh, dr sean watley family physician former head of the om and author of the great book, When Politics Comes Before Patients, Alex Hannum, President and CEO of MedPoint, and Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. This was a fascinating discussion, and thanks to all three of you for joining me for it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was fantastic. My thanks again to Joanna and Alex and Sean, Dr. Sean Watley, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. I always learn so much from doing these Friday shows. So I thank you for all of those of you who have tuned in and also those of you who have sent topic ideas. We've had uh, some suggestions of things that we should explore and, and people we should have on. So if you have any of those, feel free to send them my way, andrew at andrewlawton.ca. That does it for me. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent and talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news. <laughs>